1: The Autosport Podcast. We ask which team Fernando Alonso is off to now and look back at Lewis Hamilton's victory in the Belgian Grand Prix. Formula One returned from its summer break with something of a bang in the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa-Francorchamps and in fact several bangs when it came to a certain pair of teammates who seem to have developed a magnetic attraction for each other on track. Lewis Hamilton of course winning the race by a very narrow margin from Sebastian Vettel and getting us all very excited about the championship battle to the end of the season that is to come because it really looks like game on now. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosport, and joining me to take a look at the Belgian Grand Prix, and also some of the off-track matters, including the all-important question of where Fernando Alonso is off to now, I have the perfect pair of guests. First, by popular demand, Stuart Codling, Deputy Editor of F1 Racing, something of a cult figure. So, Codders, what have you been up to? You've been at Spa, obviously, but there must have been some antics involved.
0: Oh, there have been some antics involved. Well, before Spa, I disappointingly didn't get any death threats uh, for my Kimi Raikkonen piece on Autosport Plus. Plenty of foolish banter on uh, Twitter from people who hadn't bothered reading the feature. So um, they were very easily dismissed, sadly. Uh, I I was hoping for a better quality of heckle, it has to be said. At Spa itself, uh, I drove down with my bicycle, so I, I appear three minutes, 20 seconds into a Red Bull video where they're talking to <laughs> Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen at Rouge and I come past trying desperately not to look like I'm puffing and panting. And of course, possibly most entertaining still, I was Scott Mitchell's housemate for a couple of nights.
1: And that's a seamless way to segue on to introducing our other guest, Scott Mitchell, Autosport Plus editor, fresh back from Spa. Scott, you've declared yourself to be a pseudo Swede now. Is this down to your your long hair strategy, which has led me to to W Zlatan Ibrahimovic in tribute to the uh, the legendary footballer? Uh,
2: yes, it's a combination of my Zlatan inspired man bun and the fact that I have a Swedish other half.
0: Swede harmony, then.
2: Oh, we're off to a fine start in this podcast, aren't we? with Puns galore. Swedish footballers referenced already, I can tell this is going to be a good one. Well let's, let's cut our losses in the
1: introduction and move straight on to the matters of moment as it would have been called in the pages of Autosport about 35 years ago. Let's start off off track. Fernando Alonso, all sorts of talk about his future yet again, all sorts of complaints about Honda engines not working this interesting rumor about williams being a possible destination
0: oh where well, to start on that one firstly kind of everyone thought that ferrari had torpedoed the silly season by announcing kimi raikkonen uh, last week and that that was kind of the market locked up till 2019 and then automotor und sport ran this uh, alonso to williams story now automotor und sport are quite respected so they're not chuck it at the wall and see if it sticks sort of publication I'm not quite sure where the benefit is to him or them. That there's some talk that Paddy Lowe would quite like to see Fernando in the car to see what it can actually do, which is a slightly dismissive of his two drivers, but a sort of slightly uncharitable way of looking at the Williams driver lineup at the moment. Is that you've got Felipe Massa, who's about half a second off the pace, and uh, Lance Stroll, who's uh, a a couple of tenths to half a second off his pace.
2: It's not a very good indication of uh, where Alonso's stock at as well, if people are just viewing him as just a benchmark driver nowadays. Is that is that what he's been reduced to, this two-time world champion, who is still probably the grid's greatest all-round driver, now he's just a gun for hire to see how crap your car is? A gun for hire that not everyone wants to hire as well. Well, they're worried it may backfire. Oh, uh, The gun for hire might backfire. Go. Regarding Alonso and Williams, my personal feeling is it would just seem like a a pointless a pointless move. The last time I checked, Williams were qualifying not particularly far ahead of the Sauber's. So, and even with a Mercedes engine, they don't seem to be any better than McLaren Honda is at the moment. So even compared to what Alonso has now, it's a backwards step. They've been slowly moving backwards since 2014 anyway. They got it right, they picked the right engine partner for this era of Formula 1. But as a team, they, they seem to be lacking direction. Yes, they've got someone like Paddy Lowe, but it's really difficult to actually see where that drive comes from. Surely he's better off staying at McLaren hoping to either get it right with Honda or pick a new engine partner or even maybe move to Renault where even if he can't fight for wins straight away next season that immediately looks like a better short-term proposition than, than going to a Williams. There'd be no point I think in going to Williams with him. It's not a team with massively obvious
1: longer-term potential. McLaren still does have long-term potential. Renault, they've talked down the possibility of Alonso for next year. Obviously he may be a driver that interests him in the future but it strikes me that what there may be to this would only be a little bit of leverage in terms of doing a good deal because also from Williams's perspective, it would require a sponsor, or as some have suggested, Lawrence Stroll, the father of Lance Stroll, to put in a big cash injection to pay for Alonso to help help Lance's learning experience. But none of it really adds up, other than if you're Williams, yeah, of course you'd love to have Fernando Alonso in the car.
0: Yeah, Fernando would want to destroy uh, Lance, not help him, and. You you also get into that other problem that Williams have, which is that they need a driver over twenty five in order to uh, allow Martini to market themselves worldwide off the back of their presence in Formula One, and there really aren't that many unattached drivers over twenty five who are of the quality required.
2: The other thing that Williams probably needs to consider is that the setup of that team is very much uh, this family oriented, very close knit group of people. Fernando Alonso's character he made a reference to it in one of his press conferences over the weekend that he's seen as this guy who doesn't fit in well with teams and might be a little bit divisive I think that's a I think that's a bad fit he is a very divisive character just look at his history that just doesn't seem to be something that Williams would go for regardless of what Lawrence Stroll wants so what's he going to do then if he's not going to Williams is he going to stay at McLaren Renault have
1: talked down the possibility of him going there he says he's still got various offers to consider yeah
0: well the there has been some noise about him possibly going to indycar but i don't i, I don't really know what to think about indycar it's entertaining enough I, I don't go as far as darren heath does in describing it as um national one mate racing but
1: yeah, the cutting evaluation of, one of <laughs> f1's preeminent photographers
0: I'm, I'm not sure if indycar is a viable option for him because it's where it's <sighs>
1: It would, am, require am, am somebody I, to, it would require someone to pay him enough. It would require Alonso himself to want to do a full season of IndyCar, which he has said is not something that's interested him. The 500 interests him.
0: And I'm not sure that novelty value of the 500 apart it is uh, a, a great place for someone of his calibre to be. He would only be taking the money. So the, the ball's in his court, really. Does he want to take the money? Or does he want a competitive drive? I, I think the trouble is he's, through his own actions in the past and a, a combination of that and the way other contracts have fallen, there aren't really that many options
1: for him.
2: One thing I would say is that I'm becoming increasingly convinced that he won't be driving a Honda-powered car in Formula 1 next season. And there was a comment that he made.
1: Well, he refused to drive one that
2: appeared to be working Yeah, at Spa, didn't he? Yeah, that was interesting. So basically, uh, he... He'd, only just asked for a weather update uh, from McLaren just to see if there was any rain on the horizon if you know spicing up because he'd been he'd got up to seventh after a great start and he was just getting mugged on the camel straight um, pretty much every other lap. So he gradually fell outside of the points. He wanted to see if there was any chance of the of the weather doing him a favour. And then, uh, oh, very co- very com- coincidentally, as soon as, uh, on very, very soon after, he got this confirmation that there wasn't any rain on the radar. He brought the car back into the pits with what he said was an engine problem. But Honda said that there was nothing on the data at the time to suggest there was a problem, but they brought it in anyway as a precaution. But um, as part of the... The latest Alonso bashing of, of Honda over that weekend. There was a comment after the race where he was asked how much longer he thinks he can put up with this. And he said, what, seven or eight races. So indicating till the end of the season. So to me, I interpret that, given how furious he's been at, at Honda this season, I interpret that as either McLaren is going to ditch Honda. And we'll be having a different engine part the next season or Alonso's out of McLaren because McLaren's sticking with Honda. But I massively interpreted that as Alonso flat out saying, I'm with Honda for seven or eight more races, however long the season lasts.
0: It could just be words, though, couldn't it? Words and noise that we just attach an interpretation to. You know, it could be completely out of his hands what engine they go with because... The all these the, there was there was talk of a very complicated swap seat uh, going, deal going on uh, just before the summer break, uh, which would include McLaren taking Renault engines, Toro Rosso taking uh, Honda engines, and Carlos Sainz Junior going off somewhere and doing something. You know th- that that's already come unstitched, hasn't it? Because the Toro Rosso deal is off, even if it was ever on, and. Um, the, the Honda contractual obligation that we understand that they were uh, they, they had some sort of agreement that they would be providing parity with Mercedes at some point, probably around spa time. But the, uh, spec 4 did not arrive. We got spec 3.5 and 3.6 and then...
2: 3.6 didn't work. So 3.6, we, we went
0: back to 3.5.5 5 or 3.5.8. You must restart Safari after uh, this system update.
2: <laughs> It was just the it it was just the latest sort of shambolic Honda performance over a Grand Prix weekend, and I just can't I just can't see Alonso uh, running with Honda power next season. And we know that he's always said he'll make up his mind in September. My guess would be that McLaren has a month to unpick itself from whatever contractual obligation it's got with Honda. You know, ultimately, if there are clauses, maybe they can, then maybe they can sort of blag their way out of it through that. I just can't I just, I can't see it happening. I think uh, I think we'll have some kind of confirmation soon that McLaren's either parting ways with Honda or parting ways with, with Alonso. And you've got to think that if he if McLaren genuinely has the chance of Renault engines next season, Alonso said a lot of good things about what McLaren's doing as a team. He said that they'd easily have been, been fastest in qualifying if they'd had a proper engine in the car at Spa. So he's obviously waxing lyrical about what McLaren's doing on the chassis side. So if a Renault if if it's only if it's either McLaren Renault or going to the Renault works team the Renault works team doesn't seem to really want him for next season and McLaren-Renault actually seems like a pretty good option for Alonso right now. If they stay with Honda, I I think he would he goes to another team or he walks from F1. That well, does seem the more likely
1: option, doesn't it? And of course, the great irony of this is at the same weekend we had the confirmation of both Räikkönen and Vettel, well, the same week, I should say, it wasn't all over Spa weekend, Räikkönen a new one-year deal, Sebastian Vettel a three-year deal, unusually that should take him all the way through to end of 2020 it would be, wouldn't it? And that's of course the seat that Alonso turned his back on to go to McLaren.
0: It's a good deal for Ferrari. The the Raikkonen thing was something we did flag up um, in the uh, controversial Raikkonen should retire feature. Uh, oh, did which you write I something found. about Raikkonen? Course? I think I might have
1: done. Well, I believe that deal was done just before the break. You know, the
0: the, the the premise of that feature, which we haven't at all mentioned previously, is that Raikkonen is is a wasted talent who certainly shouldn't be. Uh, pratting around, being number t- obliging number two to uh, another multiple world champion, so it it was likely to happen that they would re-sign him. It's it's just a bit of a shame to see a driver of that caliber just basically being a, a, a silence number two, and Vettel's three-year deal is interesting they obviously feel that they don't need to i know I, I was almost going to use the word incentivize there but i i stopped myself it, it you you'd normally give a, a driver an incentive to work hard by keeping them tethered to a short deal um e- either a one or one plus one or a two plus one but for it to be straight three years shows they've got a lot of faith in his continued burning competitiveness over the next three years.
2: Ferrari's staunch conservatism over the years always suggested that it would ultimately lean towards Kimi, especially as this is his best season since you know in his second spell at Ferrari. What was unexpected, I think, was the length of the Vettel deal, just a straight announcement of a new three-year deal because it, it takes him out of that 2019 driver market which everyone was sort of looking at thinking, right, okay, so at the moment we've got Bottas at Mercedes but he's only on a one-year deal so they'll probably only sign him on a one-year deal for next year probably given themselves some insurance by having an option for 2019 obviously Hamilton's existing Mercedes deal expires at the end of 2018 you've got Ricardo on the same deal I think at Red Bull and then Verstappen under lock and key for 2019 but obviously at that by then you've got one year left of his contract so does someone make a move to buy him out so there was you know there's a big driver market that now Vettel on the face of it has been taken out of so he but, got- but he's
1: also locked himself into one of the two strong teams and has got that stability so oh, I no, guess absolutely. you can see but why he's above her absolutely but you would say
2: to him. you would say that obviously on recent form you know the idea of uh, for vettel's long term interest that you would imagine that in 2019 2020 you know mercedes is going to is arguably a better bet than than ferrari over the over the last few years they've been a certainly more consistent performer at the front than Ferrari and from a Mercedes side obviously massive German manufacturer the idea of getting a four maybe five time world champion after this season on board that's a Hamilton Mercedes is a super team and Mercedes Vettel will be a super team especially if you know who knows if Lewis is going to surprise us this year or next and go actually I'm I'm done with this now I've achieved everything I want to. It would be
0: interesting We, we, we don't know
2: the precise extent of the conversations
0: that transpired between Vettel and Mercedes, because we had Nicky Lauder with his usual direct connection from brain to mouth, telling TV stations that they'd been having conversations with Vettel as uh, up until the summer. But he was
1: which organ to, would you like those thoughts to be communicated through between the brain and the mouth?
0: <laughs> well, you'd expect some filter. <laughs> <laughs> Some some people would suggest uh, that I certainly speak out of a different organ than my mouth, but um, they all live on the internet. Uh, and uh, so, so, to come back to the subject, uh, after after Nicky sounds off and uh, says whatever he says, which may or may not be true, you have Toto Wolf then having to try and uh, tamp down the fire of the rumours somewhat, and uh, a rather bizarre press conference ensued in the Mercedes motorhome where. Uh, they sort of whipped out their copy of Fowler's modern English usage so to speak and Toto was trying to sort of redefine the terms of what actually constituted a conversation you know when is a conversation just a paddock chat oh lovely weather today etc.
2: It does seem perfectly reasonable to to expect that at some point Lauda has had a chat with Vettel and given that he's one of the leading drivers you ask they both might be conversations but there is a difference between a conversation in the paddock or somewhere privately like a For example, a mercedes Motorsport Boss's birthday party, where you say, like, what are you doing? And you you talk informally and then actually getting people around a negotiating table and saying, right, what is your actual contract? What are your requirements? What do we need to do to make this happen? they're obviously, they're, they're poles apart in terms of the seriousness of them. And I think that's what Toto and Mercedes were getting a bit sort of protective about was that. Nicky had said something that sort of basically made it sound like Mercedes had made like an official approach to Vettel or actually gone, you know, full guns blazing trying to get him and then backed off when they realized he was committed to Ferrari.
1: The bottom line is Sebastian Vettel is with Ferrari. And in fact, if anything, he'd have gained quite a bit of encouragement from, from Spa. The fact Ferrari was so close and so competitive at a track that should have played to its weaknesses is pretty encouraging. I saw this as massively positive for the rest of the season, Lewis Hamilton won the race obviously he won it from pole position a really, really special pole lap as well with great performance trimmed out in the twisty downforce, more downforce dependent sector too, but Hamilton only won by 2.4 seconds so this is a win for Hamilton but just as Ben Anderson, our Grand Prix editor's race analysis said this really was a bit of a a win for Ferrari in terms of their relative pace wasn't it? Massively,
0: Um, when you look at what the relative pace was at Silverstone which, while we're not Exactly, comparing like with like, it's another high-speed circuit. Um, You have to say the gap has closed, and they did seem to come with a lot of um, upgrades, and not not just detail changes, but even the the, the front suspension was altered to to allow That's them the more thing.
1: rake, aero, and some mechanical work, which is always very positive.
0: You you, you can't really talk about cars having particular strengths and weaknesses. In Formula One and hold on to it as much as you you used to be able to. Uh, I I was listening to the circuit commentators uh, wittering while I was out watching at Poon on uh, Friday, and um, just the stuff they were coming out with just seemed massively out of date. It seemed like six months stuff from six months ago. You know, uh, well, you know, the Mercedes with its long wheelbase will be faster around the twisty sections, and you know, you know it's. You, you're talking about how Formula 1 was round about uh, uh, Melbourne, Bahrain time and, and it moves on and cars don't necessarily retain the same strengths and weaknesses through
2: a season. Especially when you go to a circuit like Spa and you're making compromises that make a massive difference over over what is a long lap. So for example um mercedes as, as you mentioned ed uh trimming out downforce for to benefit in sectors one and, and three and then leaving itself vulnerable through sector two in terms of pace and and hamilton did a superb job of uh, negating that downside um in qualifying to to, to nail pole but th- there's there's very little be- between them and you know wolf said in the build-up to to the belgian grand prix that it was dangerous for Mercedes to assume it was going there as favorite just because it has done in recent years in this era of formula 1 and because they had such a strong race at silverstone where they dominated but vettel said afterwards uh, you know the reason he thinks that ferrari's ferrari doesn't need to fear any other tracks for the rest of the season is a combination of they didn't do a particularly great job at silverstone so they left performance on the table at silverstone and the combination of Maximising everything at Spa and bringing improvements to Spa means that they were much much closer to to Mercedes, and as Raikkonen said afterwards, probably more than more than people probably could have expected. So now they go to other circuits. Okay, maybe Monza will be uh, more of a Mercedes circuit, much to the uh, to sugaring of the Tifosi, but. The big question was always going to be, can Ferrari actually keep it up over the course of the season? The evidence of Spa would suggest they can, and that's why Vettel and Ferrari are so confident for for the remainder of the campaign.
0: It's actually very good for this final run to the tape, isn't it? Oh, that Ferrari news. have um, uh, been, been able to develop a car and, and not get left behind. And I kind of, I suppose, arguably really, really push Mercedes very hard because Mercedes brought uh, an engine step. And we'll see how that works out. Can, can we talk about oil burn, or, or is that a really boring subject? I we think, can talk about. I think it's, it's,
2: oil it's burn. worth flagging up because it does does seem like Mercedes have played an absolute blinder on the, on this one. How much do you know about Codders? Can you give us a brief overview of the situation? The the briefest
0: overview possible is that there is a cut off um, after which the oil burn will be restricted to zero point nine liters per hundred kilometers covered, uh, and um, that. Uh, deadline is now, so they have enabled themselves to run an engine that burns one point two liters of oil per
2: hundred kilometers maybe in Mercedes. 80s
0: now the difference between those two is uh, that's that 's what three hundred uh, milliliters, which is about the amount of liquid you could fit in the happy mug that i 'm uh, waving here, which uh, obviously doesn't translate to podcast listening. So let's say it's about the size of a can of Coke. So you've got, you're have got looking at two or three cans of Coke worth of fuel per race. Or, or rather, cans of oil that you can burn as fuel per race. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not explaining this very well it's at well, all. I I mean, you say
2: Coke, is Pepsi okay?
0: Pepsi is okay, or or Coke Zero, or Pepsi Max. 7-Up, Tango? 7-Up, Tango. Other soft drinks are available. Other soft drinks are available, I should mention. It you're should if,
1: also be noted that it's not just an amount you can burn... For performance advantage obviously there is a fundamental process by which you do use up some oil while you're using it so yeah there is part of a process there that has to happen you can't
2: just put a load of oil in and then it's all there at the end in the
0: oil be the judge of that ed as uh, pam airs might have said
2: (laughs) the point of the point of all this is that mercedes introduced this new engine um, before the cutoff, they introduced it for Spa so this new engine for the rest of the year whenever they choose to use it uh, they will be able to use 1.2 litres they will be able to burn 1.2 litres of oil per 100 kilometres travelled now Ferrari, yeah, let's assume Ferrari is going to introduce its new engine for Monza because home race is a high speed circuit, it's going to be a lot of performance there. And they always expect to break into a fifth engine Ex- anyway. Exactly so let's say they do that here um, or at any point over the rest of this season uh, they will have to adhere to the new limit.
0: It's a marginal gains sport now, so this really does indicate the the extent that, or the level you have to go to, uh, to to find those tiny little gains. It's obviously worth doing, otherwise they wouldn't have done it. And um, you know, as, as we've just been saying, Ferrari are pushing them very closely, so they, they they felt that they've had to bring this step.
1: I don't think it's going to be decisive or a magic bullet. It doesn't just mean that they have to use power unit number four throughout or engine number four throughout. You can mix and match, so there'll be other active ones in the pool, and obviously that'll ensure that, that they're to the same specs. That's that's not a not a bad thing. But I think certainly Mercedes were pretty surprised internally by Ferrari's relative lack of competitors at Silverstone. They expected to be ahead, but they thought actually this is this is pretty good. I think the feeling after Spa will be hmm, this is going to be this is going to be interesting because there was a risk that Ferrari wasn't going to be in the game on as many circuits as you might want. In the running, but they are going to be, I think. Well, let's look at the actual way the race was won. Obviously, Hamilton led from pole, had a little bit of an advantage on the ultra softs early on, so the race was all carrying on fairly normally until that safety car period. The decisive moment was at the restart, with Vettel in the Ferrari on the on the softer tyres, Hamilton on the softs because he'd done an extra run in Q two, so he didn't have a fresh set of uh, of ultras to throw on. So that meant that Vettel was in was in good shape.
0: I have to say that when I was watching Q two. And the both Mercedes were very obviously through; they'd made the cut. They were miles ahead. I, I, I did wonder why they were doing uh, a, another run, and, and noticed that Ferrari weren't. It, it did, it did seem very peculiar.
1: This created the interesting situation whereby Vettel had the quicker tyre; he was always going to be strong off the source. Hamilton mm-hmm. made life a bit difficult for himself at the restart because he he did a really good job of the restart, but he wasn't in the right engine mode, so he got the jump on Vettel getting onto the power on the run-up to the chicane but then Vettel reeled him back in and then they were kind of on top of each other coming out of the source and Hamilton interestingly said that at the source because he knew Vettel was going to attack on on Camel 90% throttle managed to basically keep Vettel right on top of him on the run down to Eau Rouge to avoid such a big run being gathered because obviously if you can carry the pace off out of Radion, you can breeze past someone and have a decent advantage so that was a really good bit of racecraft. i think there from hamilton after making the initial mistake at the restart with it with the engine setting to so then I'd do ext- that it was very sharp
0: i'd, I'd extend that to the whole of the uh the, the last 11 laps or so because certainly at the restart i thought vettel was going to get him at last source and then it, they were very very close of, from from watching it either on the trackside or TV, it would have been very hard to see that Hamilton lifted, but they were very, very close. And uh, to have that feel for the absolute maximum grip you were going to get from the uh, under braking at uh, Les Combes, I thought was extraordinary. It demonstrated the level that Lewis is operating at, that um, he, he was able to do that. He had the presence of mind, even though he'd been flapping on the radio behind the safety car about the steward's decisions that he he had the presence of mind to, to lift and give uh, Vettel a little bit to think about there and, and hinder his attempt to then get a run on him at Le Combe. Uh, Brilliant under breaking. but then for the rest of the eleven laps, he was just that little bit more consistent because Vettel was trying to get into DRS range, and he just—I think there was there was one lap when he was about zero point nine seconds down, he just got to within DRS range, uh, but then Lewis was able to break it again, and and the, 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 it was—he he sort of finally gift wrapped his own uh, win. Uh, in, in in those final laps,
2: Hamilton's eventual winning margin, I think, was uh, two point three seconds, and that was uh, as big as his lead ever was over the course of the race. So to actually build that gap up um, at a time in the race where he actually had a tyre disadvantage shows, as you said, Cod, as just how well he was driving in in, in that final part.
1: And I think you also saw the relative performance of Altery Bottas, who had a difficult weekend. He said he was a bit confused. Basically, had the same setup. He was he was way off in qualifying, wasn't it? It was, uh, in fact, yeah, in sector two second. he was zero point four seven five seconds slower in sector two with the same, yeah, the on, same on, setup, on his fast lap setup. So that says a lot about how strong Hamilton was in hauling that car around the the twisty bit.
0: That that was notable enough for me to actually write that down in my notebook of scribbles that he was zero uh, point four seconds down just in one sector.
2: Yeah, and in, in the race in the second stint when he was holding a pretty respectable distance to to Hamilton, he'd. He was under a bit of pressure from Räikkönen in the first stint, but he was already putting distance between himself and the second Ferrari before Räikkönen picked up a, a stupid um, stop-go penalty for being a bit of an idiot. And Bottas was actually looking quite quite good, I, I guess, in the, in the second stint, but by that point the damage was done from qualifying in the first stint. And then I think the difference between the two was uh, magnified again by what happened under the safety car, because they were both on soft tyres, both had drivers behind them on ultra-softs to, to attack, Bottas was complaining. He said that the, he couldn't get keep the tires up to temperature under the safety car because of the the speeds they were going, and he said it was like driving on ice. And that basically meant he um, he screwed up his exit of the final chicane at the restart, which put him under pressure into turn one. So he defended a little bit into turn one. Also had a bit of a lock-up Also had poor traction exit in turn one because it's obviously La Source is a hairpin. He was on soft tires, and then he was uh, mugged by uh, Ricardo and Raikkonen on the Kemmel straight. But he actually. Should have been in a much better position than Hamilton at restart because he should have been tucked up behind Vettel and benefiting from the fact that being behind Vettel and Hamilton would have given him a double toe down the Camel Straight.
0: Marginal gains again, isn't it? Uh, I, th- I think just the the, the difference in, in that restart performance uh, says it all. That that notwithstanding, if Bottas had uh, had a little Hamilton style lift, uh, it, the the outcome might have been the same anyway because um, Raikkonen would have still have had a double toe down down the Camel Strait.
1: Now, Codders, I'm going to give you a chance to get back on side with some of the Kimi Räikkönen fans because Scott, I think, described Räikkönen disregarding the double wave yellows and not backing off for the Verstappen- It was stupid. Induced, you know, as Kimi Räikkönen was saying, well, this was a stupid penalty because it was just a carve to the side of the track halfway behind the barrier.
2: Do you want to defend him? Do you know what? I will. You're an idiot as well, then.
0: Not. Um, I'll, I'll defend him to an extent because... The fact is that yellow flags were showing. Quibble quibble about whether they should have been on, if, if you want. But at that time, when you're in a race situation, you don't just decide you're going to ignore a yellow flag because you think you know better. That in itself was dim and unprofessional and not becoming of a world champion. He should retire. He should retire. That notwithstanding, uh, he did drive very well to ameliorate the loss caused by his stupid mistake, because he very quickly, uh, he came out behind Ocon, if memory serves, made very short work of Ocon, uh, a Mercedes-engined car, so not to be sniffed at, then nailed Hulkenberg, and then he he benefited, of course, from the safety car to get back on terms, and that put him in a position to regain uh, another position. But uh, Scott's putting his hand up now, so he's going to argue with me. I, I think I'm done defending Kimi Räikkönen. I,
2: I, I, I agree with you that Räikkönen did well to counteract some of the damage he inflicted on himself. But you only have to look at the race result. He finished uh, almost four seconds behind Ricciardo. Yeah, Räikkönen, okay, so he was opportunistic by mugging Bottas at the same time as Ricciardo. And then he had, what, 10 laps to pass a Red Bull, a Renault-powered Red Bull at Spa? and he ended up drifting away from him. Uh, he it's it's really frustrating because he was so good in practice and Saturday practice as well, qual Q1, Q2 and then he picked up these mystery vibrations in Q3 that put him fourth on the grid. He sort of mentioned them again before the start like there was a bit of a concern but apparently he said afterwards that they were fine during the race and then just goes He's just absent again. It's so frustrating. It, he showed, not for the first time this season, that he does still have these flashes that show that he can be a front-running driver, a guy who can fight for poles on the winds, and he doesn't actually throw a weekend together. That's That's just the a, thing. It's just
1: frustrating. That's the thing. Sometimes we are quite harsh on Raikkonen, but it's because we know how good he should be. Yeah, yeah we, like, we, we, want him, we want him to be putting it yeah. together.
2: We would all absolutely love that. This was a guy who, 10 years ago, was the, probably the most exciting guy on the grid. And he's just like... It's it's just so annoying. It's good. As as as
0: I might have mentioned uh, in in the uh, <laughs> Raikkonen <laughs> feature that I've I've definitely not talked about. Uh, at all during the course of this see, podcast, see, see, we're, all we're, enjoy, we're
2: enjoying these uh, these in jokes that Autosport Plus articles like to provide. And if you'd like to be involved in these in jokes, you can uh, you can do that for the uh, very very generous sum of ninety four pence per week. Ninety four pence that's, per week. That's what it works out as if you buy a yearly subscription at forty nine pounds. Or alternatively, if you don't want to buy an annual subscription, you can pay five pound fifty a month for one. That's an effortless plug, and I, I have to give you credit for that. It's
0: brilliant. Well, what, the the way I would put it is um, why why waste time getting angry about something you haven't read. Um, uh, based on what you think it might have said when you can pay the princely sum of 94 pence uh, which is uh, less than the cost of a bottle of water at a motorway service station and and get properly angry at something someone's actually written and you actually read
1: by way of end stuff on this little segment on kimmy reichen i do want to say when it comes to yellow flags now i do have some problems with the way sometimes yellow flags are used i think that there's quite a big a big band in terms of where you get double wave yellows etc and I think sometimes that does devalue them however just because you're Kimi Raikkonen and you know the car's off behind the barrier you don't know what else is going on you don't know if there's marshals on the track you don't know if there's a a nutter has run onto the track to protest something you don't know what's going on and particularly when it comes to to rescue recovery work you know if there's marshals chat they have to be protected and you just have to accept that you do need to respect the... You know, just has and the fact he got yeah. such an, such a big penalty, 10-second stop go. You don't see many of those. Reflects the fact that, by my understanding, he just he kept through. There was, yeah, no, yeah. There was no even token lift, uh, and that's was. what that's what's, not what's, even
2: a token lift. And he, where he said he didn't slow down on the straight, and that's the your point is is spot on. It just because you don't agree with something, don't mean you just disregard it. You don't make the rules up as you go along. Hamilton was furious at the speed of the safety car. He didn't just drive past the safety car, warm his tyres up a bit more, and then drop back and yeah, fly on the ya. restart, did he?
1: Hurry it up, burned. Now, mentioning the yellow flag, obviously Max Verstappen, yet another DNF. That's his sixth DNF this season. That's as many as Fernando Alonso's had, if you include his failure to start in Russia. In fact, there's a great stat that uh, Verstappen has only completed 405 racing laps this year. Alonso's done 446, and he didn't start in Russia and didn't even turn up to Monaco. So you can understand why Verstappen's getting a little bit miffed by this, can't you?
2: His four mechanical failures this season out of those six DNFs. He's had one podium. And this is a guy who, obviously, everyone's tipping to be a, a race winner and, and world champion in, in, in the right car. And he actually said to um, Dutch TV that he'd, because the problem that uh, that stopped him this time was uh, something to do with a, a, a sensor. And basically, they've introduced uh, this like mechanical failsafe, basically, where if the sensor picks up that there's a problem within the engine, uh, it goes into like a like a limp mode or shutdown mode, uh, just to prevent something a bit more spectacular. And Verstappen actually told Dutch TV that he'd rather have his engines blowing up at this stage because it's just so frustrating that these small, tiny little glitches are just shutting down and ruining his race. Because you know he had the legs on Ricardo all weekend. Um, admittedly, Ricardo was a little bit hampered by the fact that he was the one tasked with the ultra low dra- low drag setup in. Friday practice, so Verstappen had a little bit of a head start. But Verstappen was mega again, and you know he's running comfortably in fifth. The first few laps, it, arguably it could have been him nicking the final podium, and instead he's stood by the side of the road, um, sort of shrugging his shoulders and trying to give a hopeful wave at the legion of. Orange-clad duchies that are there to support yeah, it.
0: Forty thousand uh, Dutch fans, they reckoned. I don't know if that was the queue. One of these uh, counting them uh, every day they come in uh, as, a, as a separate uh, attendance or or not. But there were there were a lot of Dutch people and they they were out and about at Puan when I was uh, trackside, getting on it at eleven o'clock in the morning. They had a, loads of them had special trolleys that. Um, had beer coolers uh, mounted. They were very much looking forward to see their man perform. Uh, as they were in Austria, there was a lot, a full grandstand of duchies in Austria, and he ground to a halt in front of that. It, it is a
1: bit of a shame. Um, Especially as you know, Scott mentioned, four mechanical DNFs, but the other two ones haven't been his fault. He no. was an innocent victim of a first-corner incident in both Spain and, and Austria. So you know, there's kind of this idea that some people are putting forward that Verstappen somehow massively overdriving taking huge risks all the time yes he hit daniel ricardo at the hungaroring that was a big error but sometimes these things just do happen you have a sequence of reliability problems you get annoyed i can't blame him for being irritated by this yeah
0: it's it's such a easy and stupid thing to say that someone is overdriving and therefore um breaking the car it's, it's a tight.
1: lot harder to do that yeah. these days
2: yeah the only um the only element of uh, Verstappen being hard on Renault's at the moment is just the constant criticism from Jos and Max and then obviously on the team side Christian Horner and Helmut Marko have voiced their displeasure uh, well more than once but in, in quite earnest fashion after the after the Grand Prix I think they made it very very clear to Renault how unacceptable the situation is and and I guess in fairness to Renault Cyril Abitable said that they are aware that the fragility of their engines is is un, is unacceptable, and and it is their first priority now to try and resolve it, but. It is. It's getting to the point. It's not obviously. It's not McLaren Honda levels of um, shambolicness, but that Red Bull Renault alliance is uh, has been problematic for a little while now, hasn't it? So it remains to be seen whether or not they can actually fix it. And it certainly sounds like Yoss and Max Verstappen are losing a little bit of faith that 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 union can actually be salvaged.
1: They should think themselves lucky they haven't got a Honda. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. They, you you have to say when when people make comments like that. Be careful what you wish for, because if they were to divorce from Renault, as surely as eggs don't bounce, will not be getting a Mercedes engine in the back of that Red Bull. So um, you, you you have to, in the words of the catering industry, take what you give and say thank you and smile sometimes.
1: Let's get on to the really big question now, the big controversy of the race. Codders, Scott, who's Team Ocon? Who's team Perez?
0: Uh, in, in terms of what? In terms of whose fault those things were?
1: Two collisions, obviously. The first on the first lap when Ocon made it three wide going into Eau Rouge and got sort of wedged against the pit wall by Perez. And then the second one on lap 30 when he tried to, on the power, pull alongside Perez down from La Source.
0: Yeah, I think if if we look at the first lap incident, Perez didn't really have anywhere to go. So we'll have to...
1: Uh, racing incident so it it, that, racing that was incident. definitely a racing incident because I think you have to ask in that one exactly what Ocon's end game was there making it third wide on the approach to I yeah, where, yeah where, Ocon was probably being was a bit too on. adventurous there was nothing wrong with him doing it and credit to him for giving it a go but he didn't cause it, but it wasn't yeah, necessarily. Yeah. If you commit to a
0: gap that's narrowing, then you have to be prepared to reap the whirlwind. As uh, I mentally said to myself one time, if you no longer go time. for a
2: gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. See, they've been brought up on these quotes, yeah. And they think that they absolutely have to do it and be aggressive.
0: It it is ridiculous, and, and many a time when I lived in London, I'd see scooterists on the uh, Wandsworth one way system uh, trying to shove their machine into the diminishing gap to uh, undertake a bus as it did a ninety degree left. And you think, no, no, that gap's closing. It's closing. It's closing. You're going to be on the brakes. If you no longer go for
2: a gap that exists. You're no longer a London commuter.
1: Well, let's let's part the Eau Rouge one because I think while kind of mechanically there, yeah, Perez came across. Ocon didn't really have anywhere to go, but there was a little, I think, racing instance that you find for that one.
0: Hart de uh, Perez guilty as a puppy sitting next to a pile of poo, I think. Uh, he definitely put the squeeze on him. Ocon, you know, you can make an argument for him being a little bit impetuous, but at the end of the day, if you don't go for a gap, then you're no longer a racing driver. I've, I've got <laughs> a,
1: I've got to say, I mean, I'm am a, I'm a big fan of Ocon, not in terms of cheering him on, but... I think he's got a lot of ability he's doing really well. But again, on that one, he's perfectly entitled to do what he did. But I do also have to ask what his end game was because obviously the wall comes in there. Yeah, it, I could it's, see it it's coming. A, I think Perez fundamentally was the cause of it. But again, it's it's putting yourselves in these situations. In fact, Gary Anderson, who's written a, a column on Autosport Plus all about this in which he's basically sort of said well it's just idiotic these drivers keep doing this so obviously this isn't the first time they've collided they collided in Hungary they collided in Baku Baku cost them a couple of podiums That's was a huge cost but Gary pointed out that he doesn't see Perez and Ocon constantly colliding with other drivers this year so it's obvious they've both got a bee in their bonnet about the other and they're becoming more aggressive, et cetera, When it comes to racing each other, so they have to be a little bit careful. Well, yeah. let's, let's Scott's rem- rem- got his hand well, up.
2: Well, yeah. Well, let's just remember that Ocon was actually a bit annoyed at the time because he'd he felt that he should have been uh, he felt that he was a bit mugged off by the by the team bringing in uh, Perez. Yeah, two uh, laps earlier, uh, yeah, exactly. Wasn't it? Yeah, uh, but it was because that Perez had picked up a, a time penalty for. Um, passing Roman Grosjean at the end of the Camel Straight, but in doing so, misses like basically break too late, carried too much speed in, and skipped across the runoff. Um, so he got a five five second penalty for that. And the team said over the radio, it was a bit unclear, but the team said that the reason they did that was because he had, I guess, he had to serve a five second time penalty. So Ocon was a bit annoyed. He he was attacking Perez. Perez defended. He got the run. He got the cut back underneath him. And you could argue that, you know, given the fact that he was drawing. Sp- it wasn't alongside by any means, but he was drawing alongside that early on on the run out of La Source that you would imagine that it had been at least side by side, if not Ocon edge in ahead into a Rouge. So another driver, particularly your teammate, if he's seen you, I guess Ocon's argument would be the expectation would be him not to be squeezing him the way he did. The way that Perez moved over, part of me kind of feels that he actually didn't see him properly. I don't no, don't necessarily believe it was malicious. Um, I agree that Ocon wasn't completely alongside and was therefore probably being a little bit too op- opportunistic. But ultimately, he's got the run out of the corner. He's got part of his car alongside enough that there's going to be an accident if the driver on the left-hand side continues to move over. I don't believe that it's Ocon's responsibility to avoid the crash there because he's got his will. Uh, he's starting to get his will on I the I inside. don't think anyone's
1: saying it is in that regard. To no, avoid don't. the crash, but it's the, yeah. it's the... You said, you said, you
2: what's said, his, what's his end game there? I think he's to get out the inside, isn't it? Before it's got the run well, down. To why, why is
1: his end game not just pass him on camel straight? Yeah, because this is the point that the thing Gary said about they've just clearly got a problem with each other. Force India, I think, probably ultimately are to blame to this the team management now. They haven't dealt with this. It was clear after the Hungarian Grand Prix that they were both unhappy with what had happened and the, the treatment after the first corner. So I think maybe. If those two are getting a little bit too fixated on each other, this is what
2: leads to this oh, definitely, constantly they, 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 they just need their heads banging together, don't they? It's kind of, it's similar to like... You know what we were saying about how frustrating it is to see Raikkonen not string a weekend together? Every time they get together... I don't know about you, Codders or Ed, but I'm just expecting there to be something. It doesn't even yeah. surprise me anymore that they do. And it's so annoying. It is a
0: combustible it, partnership in the way that Perez and Hulkenberg wasn't... I suppose the thing... The, the ocon thing is if if you're going to do a uh, let me through or we crash type maneuver you have to be prepared occasionally for the other driver to
1: say okay then ocon didn't cause any either of those collisions they weren't his fault from the pure mechanics of it perez was the one who was coming across but and he you know, only he knows if he knew Ocon was coming there. But I have a sne- smarter, I I have 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 f- sneaking suspicion Perez probably did know Ocon was coming. Yeah, uh, in the second in the second one, and in which case that reflects very badly on him. But the, the pair of them just need to whatever they do. Yeah, the first person you have to beat is your teammate, but they can't keep getting so excited about beating each other in this way that they're just automatically creating these scenarios. So we can assume that the Force Indians will probably collide at Monza again this weekend, but. Up front, what are we expecting to see? This is going to be kind of a continuation of Spa, or is it going to be something a bit different?
2: I think there's, a, I think there is probably just about enough in, the, in in the Mercedes for for it to be to expect a, a Mercedes victory on Ferrari's home soil. And I think just having a look at the points, you know, Bottas's poor performance slipping to fifth has dropped him, you know, comfortably more than a race win behind Hamilton. Now I just get the feeling that it's going to be more in Hamilton's favour within that team. As a, as a result, so I think a Mercedes 1-2 with Hamilton leading the way and then Vettel completing the podium. Yeah,
0: you've got to expect that, haven't you? And maybe with Vettel sneaking ahead of Bottas again through um, aggression, racecraft, and uh, a bravura performance egged on by the Tifosi. Uh, and, and apparently viewing figures are up in um, uh, on Sky Italia. Uh, the, the, the whole of the country is energised by the improved performance of the Ferraris this year. We'll see a lot more Dutchies there again. So though, 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 those of you who are fortunate enough to go to Monza need to be uh, making an early start when you're driving in.
1: It's going to be great fun, though, if Ferrari could win, though. They haven't won in Monza since 2010. That'll be, uh, be very, very good for the season. But anyway, you'll be able to follow all the news and coverage and reports, etc., from the Monza weekend on Autosport.com. And you'll also be able to check out all the latest features on Autosport Plus, which is admirably plugged by Scott earlier in the podcast. And indeed, Codders, Autosport Magazine's out every Thursday. This Thursday's issue's got Ben Anderson's race report, his ever-controversial driver ratings. Read those, disagree, tell him about it on social media. He absolutely loves that. We'll also have F1 Racing Magazine you can get. So thanks very much to Stuart Coddling and to Scott Mitchell for your insights on Spa. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.